Hello and welcome to the Week in 60 Minutes, brought to you by Spectator TV and broadcast on April the 5th, 2023. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the Deputy Editor of The Spectator and I will be your host today. First up on the show, it is Holy Week uh, and we have a special Easter edition out. But we will start with uh, the big story of the week, which is, in fact, the passion of the Donald. Donald Trump has been indicted in a court in Manhattan this week uh, to much international interest and quite a lot of outcry and concern about the state of justice in American democracy. I'll be joined by the journalist and broadcaster Megan Kelly to talk about the political fallout of this historic and unprecedented event. And we will move on to talk about the late Nigel Lawson, who sadly died this week. He was, as the Spectator's leader puts it this week, the most consequential Chancellor of our times. I'll be joined by Charles Moore, a former Spectator editor and biographer of Margaret Thatcher, to discuss his life and legacy. After that, we will talk about our cover piece in the Spectator's Easter special, which is religiously themed, appropriately enough. It's about Justin Welby and Pope Francis and 10 years of their divisive leaderships. It's written by Dan Hitchens, the First Things senior editor. Uh, I'll be talking to him and I'm also joined by the comedian and broadcaster Andrew Doyle. And finally, we'll be talking about art in Prison. We have a very interesting lead arts review by Stuart Jeffries in this week's magazine about a new and rare exhibition of prison art by prisoners in HMP, Her Majesty's Prison of Grendon. I'll be joined by Stuart and the poet and prison rehabilitation activist Lady Unchained. Uh, and finally, a reminder that if you want to subscribe to Spectator TV, if you enjoy this broadcast, as I'm sure you will, you should subscribe to Spectator TV. Um, you can do that by clicking the subscribe button at the bottom of your screen. And there is a bell icon, which I have misleadingly said before this was at the top of your screen. It is not at the top of your screen. The bell icon is at the bottom of your screen. So please click on that to subscribe to the Spectator's TV channel. And while you're at it, you may as well subscribe to The Spectator. It is the greatest and oldest magazine in the world. You can do that at the moment with a special offer, which is for £12, you will get 12 editions of The Spectator, as well as full access to the website and our app and various other digital offerings. To take advantage of that offer, go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer. So let's start with Donald Trump, who has been indicted this week uh, after days and weeks of anticipation. And it's fair to say it was something of a damp squib. I'm joined now by Megan Kelly, the uh, broadcaster and journalist and former lawyer to talk about it. Um, Megan, I've spoken to a few sort of get Trump type people who've been determined to get Trump uh, for seven or eight years now. And they thought that in these 34 counts um, against Donald Trump, there might be something, there might be some sort of hidden thing that would actually prove to be quite damning. Uh, but I read the indictment 
Uh, and I think it's fair to say that it's um, comically thin with your legal brain on. Would you agree? I completely agree with you. And I think they're kidding themselves. I think they should be angry at Alvin Bragg because there may be a decent case against Trump, at least more decent than this one in the special prosecutor, Jack Smith, who's looking into whether he openly defied a subpoena that was served upon him in Mar-a-Lago and had his lawyer say he turned over everything when he hadn't. That one is at least interesting. It is colorable. This one's a joke. It makes a joke out of the justice system. It's absurd to violate nearly 250 years of precedent in not going after uh, former presidents criminally. Uh, with this, are you kidding me? It's an embarrassment. And it's obviously an attempt to fulfill a campaign promise by Alvin Bragg, who not once, not twice, but repeatedly, over a dozen times, touted his record of getting Trump, of having been part of at least 100 lawsuits against the Trump organization and the Trump family and Donald Trump himself, and promising he was just the man to do it if they would put him in office. By the way, the people who were persuaded by that are Trump's jurors. That's his jury pool and his potential jury, which is one of the many reasons why, at a minimum, this case should be moved out of the borough of Manhattan, which went 87 percent for Joe Biden. But it is thin gruel in that indictment. Well, so uh, there'll probably be a motion to dismiss uh, from from Trump's lawyers. Uh, I think the anticipation is that that won't succeed. Uh, do you think uh, a motion to move the, the case out of New York would succeed? I don't think the motion to change venue will be successful, but I actually don't feel as pessimistic about the motion to dismiss as you do. Um, it would take a steel spine by the judge because you get elected to the position he's in. The judges at the uh, trial court level in New York get elected, and he does not want to disappoint the electorate by saying, I threw out the case against Donald Trump. So it would take a steely spine. But eventually it could be it could go up an appeal. And I do think uh, an, an appellate court is very likely to say this thing ought to go. Not the immediate appellate court because they're elected as well, but the level above that. Uh, mm -hmm. Because there's no there there. If you look at it just in a nutshell, what he's done is charge a misdemeanor crime, which is falsification of business records. And the only way you elevate that to a felony, which he must do because the statute of limitations has run on those misdemeanors. It was only two years or five years in. Um, he's tried to elevate them to felonies so we can get the five-year statute of limitations by saying the reason you did shenanigans on your bookkeeping was to cover up an underlying crime. Now, if that's true, he does get the longer statute of limitations. But we all waited to say, what's the underlying crime? Tell us. We're open-minded. Let's see. What did he do? It's Trump. He did something. We don't know. Yesterday, Alvin Bragg tried to play pin the tail on the felony. Like, we have no idea. I don't have to tell you, he actually said. But then went on to say, maybe it's federal election law. Maybe it's state election law. Maybe it's state tax law. Well, let me tell you something, Freddie. It is none of those things. Because mm. the, there is no federal election law violation here. Um, it, I just got done interviewing the former head of the Federal Election Commission under Bill Clinton. OK, and this person said it's very clear under the best argument for Alvin Bragg that this was not a federal election law violation, even if everything Alvin Bragg alleges is true, even if Donald Trump, David Pecker of the National Enquirer and Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer, sat down and said, we have three potential stories coming out about you. How can we get rid of them? Let's capture and kill them. Here's a slush fund to pay off these people. Even if true, not an election contribution. That would have to be reported and so on. It's a personal expense. It was paid from Donald Trump's personal account and it just doesn't qualify. So there's no underlying crime. Look at the state law. The state law doesn't have an independent area that we can explore. The state law just says, if you conspired to cover up unlawful activity, you violated New York state election law. 
that now we're back to the federal law. The only alleged unlawful activity is under the federal election law. Well, I just covered that for you. And mm -hmm. the New York state tax law, there was no tax violation. What they're saying is you paid off the women, then you doubled the number you paid and you added 60 grand and you paid that to Michael Cohen and called it legal expenses. Why did you double the payment? Because you wanted Michael Cohen to not have to pay taxes on the fees that he used to reimburse Stormy Daniels and the others and take the tax hit himself. So the Trump organization took the hit. But New York State didn't take a tax hit. Nobody didn't get paid their taxes. In fact, New York State profited off of this money scheme that they came up with. There's no damage and there's no fraud under the tax law. And even if there were, we're, we're back to misdemeanor territory. So there is no underlying felony or crime. Um, and and it, if we're going to go down this line, you know, even further and say, OK, I'm wrong about all of that. Everything I just said is untrue. And Alvin Bragg's won every motion. They still have to prove that Trump knew about it and directed it. And there's a lot of evidence that he didn't, that Michael Cohen made this up because he absolutely hates Donald Trump and all these meetings he had with David Pecker and so on to thank him and blah, 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 which didn't have anything to do with Stormy Daniels, but had to do with the fawning coverage the National Enquirer was doing on Donald Trump from the get go. Well, and New York State has had to pay a lot in uh, police fees and closing down roads and so on in anticipation of uh, a, an upsurge of Trumpist violence, which didn't materialise. It does seem like a legal nonsense and obviously a nonsense as far as justice is concerned. Should we talk about the politics of it, though? Um, because Trump has obviously had a major boost in the polls uh, as a result of, of this uh, farce. Uh, Ron DeSantis is sort of a diminished figure, would you not say, or, or slightly knocked out the picture now. And a lot of people speculate that that's exactly what the Democrats want. And maybe this is what it's all about. It's an attempt to make Donald Trump the nominee because the Democrats think, rightly or wrongly, that they can beat him. Mm hmm. Careful what you wish for. Uh, they tried that once before and he won in 2016. I mean, we've seen this movie before. Um, earned media coverage where the media goes wall to wall Trump and no one else can get any oxygen. Um, the the candidate himself, uh, you think he's going to be under attack and uh, seen as disgusting and somebody nobody would want anything to do with, where in fact the American people see him as persecuted and the victim of an overreaching left and are impressed by his fortitude and his strength and his unwillingness to back down. Um, seeing his competitors have to scramble in their messaging as Trump takes up all the oxygen and dominates with yet another scandal. The messaging that doesn't alienate his core base and the people who love him, but distinguishes you as a different kind of candidate. No one's been able to do it at all in 16 and 20 or today. And in 16, all these same three things were happening. And we heard, this is great. There's no chance he'll, he can win with all of this going on. And we all know what happened. Well, it's happening again. And People don't learn. <laughs> they don't learn. Trump right now is seen as invincible. They see him defiant down there at Mar-a-Lago saying, you know, I fight for you. This is about you. It's not about me with the American flags behind him looking strong, looking vibrant, 76 years old, but still looking very energetic. And they say, 
He's the only one who can fight these zealots. They wanted to pack the Supreme Court. They wanted to add extra states so they could get rid of the filibuster in the Senate. They want open borders. They want all these. They tried to absolutely demolish Brett Kavanaugh when he was nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court with totally scurrilous allegations. You need an extraordinary leader to take on these fights. And they don't see anybody filling that bill besides Donald Trump. I can see yeah, you're absolutely right, clearly, that his, his campaign has been, or his chances of winning the presidency have been rejuvenated uh, by this. But is there not a, a sort of longer term risk that there are going to be more cases? We'll have the case in Georgia about um, the find me 12,000 ballots and so on. Uh, we'll have more about January 6th. Uh, and could Trump fatigue, which has sort of subsided a little bit uh, in the last few days, could that come back, do you think, as the sort of endless... Uh, allegation after allegation is, is poured out against him and people just sort of tune off and feel fed up with I'm it. I'm not feeling that in this. I mean, it's potentially true, yes. But the, the problem is not one of these cases is sexy. You know, it's not something that people can easily connect with. He had documents at Mar-a-Lago that he is a president. I mean, most of us feel like a former president can take documents from the White House. And we're already told he can declassify documents as the president. And he says he did that with these. All right, they're going to argue about it. Well, what's what did he really do wrong? Because we know Joe Biden did it, too. We know Mike Pence did it, too. Probably Barack Obama and others as well. What do you do? He got an order to produce them. And he said he'd produce everything when he hadn't. I mean, it's really hard to have your heart go a flutter at that case. It, it really is. And then the case in Georgia... Find me the votes. Well, if you look at the larger conversation, it's a lot more nuanced than that. He felt like he had the votes and they were not counting them. And he was basically saying, go count them for him. Like, I'm telling you, this is the number I need. And they're there. That's what he's going to argue. Again, can you really get emotionally invested in this one passing phrase and this much longer conversation? I don't I just don't think people are going to connect with those cases in any meaningful way. And so. They can do 24-7 on this on CNN if they want. And people who already hate Trump will watch it and feel gratified. But I think the Republican base, which is what he needs to get by first, will be bored with it. Uh, might see that he's got baggage, but will also see this fighter who they need to fight these extreme people who don't can't even say what a woman is. Um, you know, you need somebody who's strong, who knows how to fight battles and craziness. And I really think that it will be more of a net benefit to Trump than a net downside. You mentioned Joe Biden. Uh, it seems to me that he's he's so far trying to act as though he's above it. Uh, sort of uh, his press secretary has sort of shooed away questions about it as much as she can. Uh, do the Americans buy that or do they see him as, as part of the problem that the Democrats are, uh, are causing? I think he's checked out in many ways and people understand that he's obviously partisan, but it's yet another missed opportunity for Joe Biden. This is a very dark day for America yesterday, whether you love Trump or hate Trump. We've we've crossed. It's a before and moment. It's a before and after moment for our country. We, there's a reason this has never happened in nearly 250 years. And this no name prosecutor out of New York who's trying to become a star is the one who decides he's going to change all that. He will rue the day. And so will this country. If you don't think the Republicans are vindictive enough to, to turn the tables, you haven't been paying attention. They will. In the same way uh, they got rid of the filibuster on lower court judges in the Senate and 
Mitch McConnell stood up and said, you will rue the day because you Democrats will not only always hold control of this chamber. And when the Republicans got in control, they got rid of the filibuster, too. Only this time it was Supreme Court nominees. And guess what happened? They got three Supreme Court seats under Donald Trump. Thanks to that. The turnabout. If you don't think the Republicans are going to turn this around and use it against Democrats, you're crazy. And if Donald Trump gets in there, you don't think he's going to start going after people like Hillary Clinton with his DOJ that's now under his control. It's it's a dark day. So my point is, Joe Biden had a real moment as the commander in chief, as the leader of the nation to come out and say, um, this is a dark day for America. Uh, mm. the, the legal process will play out as it should. And I trust in the legal process. However, uh, it is not lost on me that this is a first in the American electorate's history. And my heart goes out to those people who are hurting over it. And I want to reassure you that the backbone of this country is strong. And that while we may have anomalies, we may have unusual events happen, we're still strong. We still at our core love each other. We still can get past red and blue. He, no, he didn't do it. He smirked, he smiled, and he declined comment. It was a missed opportunity and he looked foolish. He's actually coming to Ireland uh, next week. Uh, he, he loves to play off his Irish heritage. You have Irish heritage, am I right in saying? I do, I do. My, my father was 100% Irish. Do you find uh, Biden's Irish stick a bit bogus? Well, he's Irish and he's black and he's Jewish and he's Puerto Rican. I mean, he's he's claimed every heritage under the sun. Apart from English, he never claims that, even though it's true. Right, right. Yeah. So I find it a stretch. Um, you know, here in America, we've had this run of people pretending they're Native Americans when they're not. And they've become known as pretendians. He's That's what he's going to claim next. So I don't know. Hold your breath. I'm not sure about the Irish thing. We'll find out, I'm sure. And of course, talking about Republicans, there's plenty of stuff on the Biden family that they could go after and they probably will. I feel like it, this guarantees it. I mean, mm. all you need is a state prosecutor. I mean, the feds aren't going to do it because Biden controls them. Uh, Merrick Garland is his guy at the DOJ and no federal prosecutor would do it without his OK. But the state prosecutors, I mean, there are Republican state prosecutors all over the country, including in states in which Hunter Biden has had illegal weapons, submitted uh, applications for those weapons, which appear to have had lies on them, had prostitutes, had drugs on camera, all documented by the so-called laptop from hell. Uh, and that's not even to touch on his nefarious business dealings uh, and what's gone on with the financial alleged crimes there. So the House is investigating some of that right now. Um, and we'll see. I He could definitely be target number one, the Clintons, the Clinton Foundation, which has got all sorts of red flags all over it uh, when it comes to their taxes and so on, could become uh, the target of an investigation down in Arkansas. There could be a long list. And while it would be further sadness for our country and what we used to stand for, it would be totally fair. Mm. Megan, it is indeed a sad day uh, for America, but um, it's Easter weekend coming up, so there's always hope. Uh, I hope you have a very happy Easter. Thank you very much. You too. I'm looking forward to it. Now, this week, the uh, Conservative Chancellor and former journalist uh, Nigel Lawson has died. Um, lots of senior Conservative politicians have been um, giving tributes to him uh, and praising his uh, record in government uh, and in, in the press. Um, I'm joined by Charles Moore, who is, uh, like Nigel Dawson, a former editor of The Spectator. Um, Charles, you, you've written this week about, uh, well, we, we can all talk about uh, Nigel Lawson's record as a chancellor, and we, we should, uh, but you've written this week about his um, journalism, because, of course, he was 
editor of The Spectator, which is uh, a much more important job than anything else, as we know. Um, uh, what, what, what was he like as editor of Spectator? I appreciate he was editor before you. Um, I think, well, Christopher Files, who's, who's still alive and, and worked with him, um, describes him as positive, cheerful and dilatory. And the, the final adjective is slightly surprising, but it's true. Um, Nigel, rather like his son, Dominic, who also edited The Spectator, is um, had a tendency to be late with copy and sort of run right up to the wire. In fact, maybe it's an occupational hazard because Boris Johnson was also like that. Um, and um, uh, Nigel, despite being very committed, I think probably all his life to political ambitions, was a genuine journalist, if you see what I mean, rather than um, uh, somebody who's sort of pretending to be one because it's a useful thing to be for a time. Um, and he had a very strong journalistic feeling for what the story was and a desire to um, expose things to public view. And he liked controversy and he liked the story and uh, he wasn't frightened. Um, yeah. And I think he was... Uh, <laughs> Excuse me. I think he was a successful um, editor, though it was in rather a bad patch for The Spectator in terms of finances and so on. Uh, and he had a certain sense of mischief or an eye for trouble, as you put it, in The Spectator this week. He, he did. Um, he began life as a city journalist, uh, Financial Times, and then city editor of the Sunday Telegraph when that paper began. And, um, uh, and I think he enjoyed um, sort of lifting the lid on things that were going wrong with companies. Um, and he enjoyed lifting it on what was going wrong with politics. And um, journalists are often unsuitable for politics, but I think he brought into politics a certain um, directness and a readiness to address the story, as it were, which is a, on the whole a virtue in politics. And um, and therefore, the way he spoke and acted tended to... Um, be close to events. It wasn't. He was had a highly strong intellect, but it wasn't a sort of. Um, it wasn't one that just sounded off. It, it was addressing what was really happening. And of course, he was Chancellor under Margaret Thatcher at a very important time in in, in British politics. Uh, could you, as Thatcher's biographer, could you tell us a little bit about the relationship between them? Well, they were close in the early days when he was very new in politics in the 1970s uh, in, and she was in opposition. And he was doing some of the thinking, um, particularly on the economic stuff. And by 1980, 81, he, he was confident enough to give a major speech. He was then a, a Treasury Minister about what Thatcherism was. And he used that word. And I think he was probably the first um, Conservative minister to use that word. It tended to to be used first of all, I think, by her enemies, such as Marxism today. Um, uh, and but he but he used it and he justified it, um, and he gave it a, perhaps a sort of stronger economic theoretical basis than she herself was likely to do. And he then became the architect, really, of a great many economic reforms, which were uh, Thatcherite, though there were important differences between the two. Um, and so the first, for example, which actually came in when he was still only a junior minister right at the beginning was the abolition of exchange controls, which was um, absolutely vital in opening up Britain for uh, world investment and, and world business. Um, mm. And and then um, he inherited from, from Geoffrey Howe, the Chancellor in the first term, um, a strong attempt to fight inflation, 
on which she built, and he had been one, the architect of the of the so-called um, medium-term financial strategy, which explained the path that was intended for get the uh, money supply, in order to uh, set a sort of pattern uh, for the control of inflation. Um, and then, um, of course, you get into a high Thatcher period when you're able to uh, defeat the trade unions um, uh, and privatize, and also um, introduce Big Bang in the city, which meant that um, the traditional restrictions on um, stockbroking and so on were were largely jettisoned and banking. And this allowed London to recover its um, preeminence as a world's financial centre. Um, Rishi Sunak has also written a, a tribute to Nigel Lawson in this week's Spectator. Um, I, it's interesting, isn't it, in terms of where conservatism is now, um, because you had all those victories um, under Thatcher uh, and a, a, a new consensus, um, a, a political realignment in favour of free markets um, at that time. And a lot of people think that that is now under threat. Uh, do you think it is under threat? Yes, I think it is under threat, actually, because I think people don't understand the creative opportunities of free markets. So what they tend to think is this is just a way in which a few people get rich quick. Lawson was perhaps the leading exponent. Well, Mrs. Thatcher was very good at it, too, in a different way, about why this matters for everybody, not just why it matters for people who are very actively engaged in monetary transactions or whatever, um, but in the whole of society, because... Um, if you can increase competition and remove restriction, opportunities open up for most citizens. Um, and it, it's part of a whole approach to freedom, which is political as well as economic. It's it's about the whole of your, uh, and it's social, it's, it's about the whole of your life and the possibilities in your life. And um, Lawson was good, exp good at expressing this. Geoffrey Howe was more cautious. Uh, Lawson was better at expressing it in terms of sort of optimism. And that was very true of the high Thatcher period. Yes. It then um, went wrong, and this was partly his fault, uh, actually, because he himself lost faith in his own policies to control inflation. And he looked for a sort of alchemy uh, to do so, which was um, he thought to be found in entry to the exchange rate mechanism, the ERM. Mrs. Thatcher wouldn't have it because she could see it was leading to a European single currency and would be bad for the pound. Um, and so Nigel uh, pursued it by secret means, by the so-called shadowing of the Deutschmark, pegging, in effect, pegging the pound sterling to the Deutschmark. And um, when she discovered that she was furious, um, the Lawson boom had by this time got definitely too big. Um, and um, the ill feeling between the two of them grew. And this culminated in um, tremendous bust up in which he and Jeffrey Howe asked to come and see her on a Sunday morning in Downing Street and gave her a sort of ultimatum that she must agree to uh, enter the RM. And this made her absolutely furious. Um, it was known as the Madrid ambush because the relevant summit was in Madrid. She got through the summit without really giving them what they wanted and sort of took her revenge afterwards. But it wasn't a very happy revenge because um, the fact she'd fallen out with her two uh, greatest ministers and uh, and that it, this concerned both Europe and economic policy was very was something from which her administration never really recovered. Mm. 
Uh, he's also been called, uh, Boris Johnson, I think, um, referred to him as a, as a father figure of Brexit. Uh, I mean, that is a, an important part of his life, is it not, is the Euroscepticism and the, the push to drive the Conservative Party out of Europe. Yes, what a rather complicated matter is when they were having this row about the ERM that he was not a Euro enthusiast. So that she got in a rather a muddle about what he was up to because he agreed that there shouldn't be the single currency, but he um, he thought the ERM would somehow avert that. It might have been a case of him getting a bit too complicated. Um, mm. He was always a Eurosceptic and he became more so. And when we got towards the Brexit referendum, Nigel played an important part um, in all of that, I, I, I'm quite sure that he wasn't, he didn't have such thoughts when he was in office. But it's also the case that he was never one of the great cheerleaders of the European idea. And he could very much see the value of economic independence and uh, and of a separate currency for Britain. Um, and that was a consistent thread. Well, a lot of uh, critics of Brexit think that, it, that the problem is, is that lots of journalists who ha- tend to have a very slapdash approach to managing public life have pushed us to this point and, and that's why we're we're not doing Brexit quite as well as we might be. Do you think that's a fair criticism? Not of Nigel Lawson. Um, uh, Lawson was bold, but he wasn't slapdash. He, um, he had a deep understanding of economic issues and a very a creative mind um, and one that understood the relationship between politics and economics uh, very, very well. Um, he had a good technical grasp too. So he was actually very hard to fault on all of that. Um, and I don't think he could be accused of sort of carelessness. Um, mm. He had a certain intellectual arrogance. And sometimes he thought perhaps that he would, Mrs. Thatcher said he's a, he's brilliant, but he's a gambler. Uh, may, maybe sometimes he was uh, taking too many risks because he thought he could, he was a bit of a magician that there was, he had the top hat and he knew how to get the rabbit out of it. Um, and um, wasn't always absolutely true. But I, I think he was a the most creative steward of um, uh, the British economy uh, in post-war era, um, the most important and in many ways the most successful. And finally, Charles, uh, just because I, it's one of my interests, let's bring it back to The Spectator. Uh, when you became editor of The Spectator, did you discuss the editorship of this magazine with him? Not much because it was too long ago, really, even then. Um, he'd been out of it for 15 years or something when I became editor. Um, but he used to talk about old times a bit. He, he, he liked his journalistic friends. He, you know, he was um, a pillar of the Garrick Club. Um, he was a keen um, connoisseur of newspapers, magazines. Um, and he liked the somewhat raffish atmosphere. He wasn't a natural sort of departmental, uh, governmental man in that sense. He, um, he liked the fun of it all. And I think one thing he knew how to do, which was visible in budget speeches and other initiatives, was uh, journalistic presentation. He, he knew how to, um, of course, like a lot of people who've been journalists, he got very fed up with with, with journalists. And he <laughs> uh, would criticise what he called teenage scribblers, um, possibly forgetting that he'd been one. Um, but he... Um, uh, he he enjoyed it. He used to co- love coming to lunch at the Spectator when he was Chancellor, um, and very open. He loved like a proper intellectual rather than a pseudo intellectual. He loved discussion, um, though he was very confident of his own views. He did want to hear other people's, and mm. he wanted to 
kick the argument around. So it was always most stimulating. You know, um, a couple of hours with Nigel Lawson were, were never wasted. Well, Charles, we'll end it there. But thank you very much for um, talking to us about Nigel Lawson. Thank you. Thank you, Freddie. Now, it is, uh, as we've already mentioned, Holy Week. And uh, the cover of The Spectator speaks to that. It's our Easter special with some uh, beautiful Easter lilies there on it. Uh, and the lead piece um, is about the fact that it's been a decade now of um, Archbishop Welby being Archbishop of Canterbury and Pope Francis being Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, I'm joined now by Dan Hitchens, uh, who is the senior editor of First Things, and Andrew Doyle, who is a writer, comedian and TV presenter for GB News and also the author of this excellent book, The New Puritans, How the Religion of Social Justice Captured the Western World. Um, Dan, you've written this piece about Welby uh, and Pope Francis, um, and it's funny that they both became uh, leaders within days of each other, within eight days of each other, I think, back in 2013. And when they were, as you say in the piece, when they were appointed, when elevated, uh, they were hailed as unifiers that might sort of bring their churches together. And in fact, as you spell out quite clearly, the opposite has happened, has it not? It has. And, well, to start with um, Justin Welby, being Archbishop of Canterbury is notoriously uh, the worst job in the world because there are such stark divisions within the Church of England. Um, But it's remarkable just this year how contentious those divisions have become. So in February, the Church of England's Parliament, the General Synod, voted to introduce uh, blessings for same-sex couples which for many people looks like a a step towards an accommodation with same-sex marriage, obviously a very, very divisive issue. And the uh, evangelical council who represent the very important evangelical wing have said they feel compelled to resist this, that if it goes ahead, uh, they'll declare that it's contrary to the scriptures about as serious a claim as you could make. Uh, Internationally as well, you have... Other Anglican leaders who aren't uh, part of the Church of England but recognise the Church of England as their mother church who've issued a joint statement saying we can no longer see the Church of England as a mother church or, or give Justin Welby a sort of special preeminence as the leader among us leaders. Um, and then as well as these big statements, there are remarkable things happening at the local level where you have churches uh, in London, for instance, two of the best-known big thriving churches have said they're going to suspend their standard payments to the Diocese of London because they feel so out of sorts with their bishop who supported this change. You have a, a big church in Oxford which has said the bishop can't come to receive communion here or preach here. So these are remarkable steps. It's not just disagreement, not even the kind of very sharp arguments we've seen, but something very close to a breaking of unity. Um, And, you know, as you mentioned in your intro, 10 years ago, Justin Welby was hailed as the man who could unite the different factions. He was a conservative, but he understood liberals. And, uh, you know, if anyone could bring peace to the situation, it was him. So that's really the puzzle with which the piece starts is how have we gone from 10 years of those very rosy hopes to the current extraordinarily divided situation? 
And just and just before we get on to Pope Francis, you do have this uh, bit in the piece where Welby has said he's extremely joyfully celebratory about same-sex blessings, but he won't do them himself, which is a sort of amazing bit of fence-sitting, is it not? Yes, and there was a, a moment, I think, last year where he said on the subject of same-sex marriage more broadly uh, that he had a view but wouldn't express it publicly. So th- this is his attempt to, to be a leader, to say, you know, I have to represent um, and speak to congregations with vastly different views on this. This is my attempt to bring them together. It was a good encapsulation of his approach before he became Archbishop, just before when he was asked, um, you know, you have people who think that having women bishops is completely impossible um, within the Anglican faith. And you have some people who think it's absolutely necessary. Otherwise, we're not real Christians. How do you square the circle? And he said, oh, it's, it's very simple. It's a circle with some sharp bits on it, which is a, a really good soundbite. But it's also sort of saying, I don't know how to make a, a statement that I think is true and that applies to this situation. Maybe we can ride it out. And he hasn't been able to, to ride it out, even with his diplomatic and, and communicatory skills. And let's just uh, quickly sum up uh, the problems with in Pope Francis' pontificate. Um, I mean, he is, uh, he's seen as divisive because he seems to pick fights with almost everyone uh, within the Catholic Church, does he not? Mm. Yes, I think there's something even more fundamental, which is that uh, Catholics have enormous respect for the Pope as a teacher whose words carry enormous weight. And Pope Francis will make statements which are extremely confusing on really quite fundamental matters. Uh, He issued a document which was partly about uh, very serious questions about marriage, about the Eucharist, the central sacrament of the Christian life. And it was very unclear what he was getting at. And some senior cardinals wrote to him and said, could you clarify these points? Um, and he didn't acknowledge the request or he, he didn't want to meet them, didn't want to address it. And there have been probably dozens of examples where he's acted in that way, where people sort of look to him for spiritual guidance and he comes up with thoughts that could be interpreted in any number of ways. Um, And I think there have also been episodes where he's intervened in uh, communities, particularly recently with this crackdown on the Latin mass, um, where basically it's now a lot harder for communities who want to have the liturgy in that form to have it, uh, which have deepened those, those divisions. Once again, 10 years ago, an enormous wave of hope, a lot of press about... Uh, how Pope Francis could get beyond these silly divisions between Christians and get down to what really mattered. Uh, And it turns out it's not that simple, that there's something much more serious in these divisions than perhaps almost anyone had understood at the time. And I think certainly these two leaders had understood, because that's been the story of their leadership. Is it gradually emerging how contentious these issues is how difficult it is to bring the sides together. Andrew, I'll bring you in. Uh, let me wave your book around. You wrote this book, The New Puritans, uh, How the Religions of Social Justice Captured the Western World. Are you surprised to the extent to which religion, as in Europe's religion, Christianity, main religion, Christianity, 
has itself been captured by social justice. This is one of the most surprising things. I mean, we've all become very accustomed to this new ideological movement infecting any institution it touches, whether that's in uh, the media or the corporate world or even the judiciary or the police or, or the NHS. We've seen how it works. It infects everything it gets into. The surprise has been how readily uh, it has been able to unveil its way into uh, traditional Christian movements. I even spoke to a, an evangelical preacher from America, from a Baptist community, who's who was talking about how uh, various of his colleagues are now um, running sessions on intersectional readings of the Bible. So even the, the most sort of uh, fervent traditionalist movements or branches of Christianity don't seem to be immune uh, to this particular movement. And I think this is why it is kind of unprecedented. I mean, Dan makes... The, the very good point that it's always been the case uh, that there has been a struggle between conservative wings of various churches and the more progressive wings of, of various churches. Uh, and that's particularly the case in the Anglican Church, because, of course, uh, various, particularly in Africa, a lot of the bishops in Africa are inherently traditionalist and want to promote that idea and are now considering, obviously, a, a, a schism. Um, and it's always been the case with Catholicism as well. But I think what is new and what is different is that this particular ideological movement is by its nature intolerant i mean dan says in his article that uh, progressivism has a religious fervor of its own uh, but i would add to that that this is a this is especially the case when you have a regressive movement that styles itself as progressive but is nothing of the sort and that is what we're dealing with here it isn't the sort of movement that will brook dissent so in terms of squaring the circle i don't think it's i don't think it's actually possible i think it has to be one or the other Mm. And do you think, I mean, uh, the religion of social justice is is intolerant, as you say, and do you think that's where it gets its strength from? And that's why, to a certain extent, if there is a battle for souls going on, it's winning. It will win because it's scary, because, you know, its practitioners have developed this thing which we colloquially call cancel culture. What that really means is bullying. What it means is if you don't subscribe to our views, we'll ruin your life. And they can be very scary people. Um, So, of course, you end up with this situation where the Archbishop of Canterbury is having to sort of please everyone because it's absolutely terrifying to go up against these kinds of activists who have uh, got made their way into the Anglican Church as well. Um, uh, In terms of the Pope, I suppose he has a... Uh, a, a slightly different situation but every successive pope whenever they contradict something a previous one has said is in trouble because of the notion of papal infallibility so often it comes down to fudging of the language which is why you get this idea of squaring a circle as as, as dan has, has pointed out um but this the the movement is impossible to resist in that respect unless you are courageous unless you are able to say no we have certain beliefs that are not compatible with your worldview. And remember that this ideology is a movement that really is about the negation of reality, the negation of of truth. Uh, It has all the hallmarks of a a religion of its own. You know, it has its own esoteric language. It has its own foundational holy texts, such as those by the likes of Judith Butler and Michel Foucault. Um, So you can't just expect it. It It doesn't blend well with other institutions. It takes them over. It works more like a virus. Uh, and in that sense, um, the, the various churches, the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church, could well do with, with a kind of inoculation rather than this attempt to fudge it and attempt to bring it in and, and claim that it's compatible. It absolutely is not. Well, Dan, as Andrew suggests, isn't it a, quite a big opportunity uh, for the Christian churches uh, it, it, to resist uh, the religion of social justice? Because, as you, as you say in your piece, you know, the, the elements of, of Christianity that are thriving tend to be conservative ones and, and young people tend to be drawn towards 
uh, more conservative forms of Christianity, um, probably or possibly because uh, it offers an antidote to, to this negation of reality, to this sort of uh, total postmodernism um, when it comes to truth, uh, that they're offered ev- everywhere else. It's definitely the story of our times that the divisions are sharpening in politics and in fundamental questions like you know, what is the difference between men and women uh, on which you know it's very hard to claim that people will try to claim um, that you know the Christian tradition can be reconciled with what is now increasingly the, the fashionable view so I think that is um, uh, that is one area where you can see uh, that trying to unify progressivism and Christianity is probably not going to work. There has to be a confrontation at some point. Um, and as you say, people who've grown up uh, in the last 30 years are quite likely to recognise that. And I think that's why you find it is often the younger believers who are more conservative, sort of, which can seem paradoxical to people who remember the 60s. But someone like Kate Forbes, the SNP leadership candidate, as was, who got in trouble for her views on same-sex marriage and premarital sex and so on, you know, 33 years old. She's in some ways quite representative of that younger generation of believers who are kind of unembarrassed, know where they stand, and definitely stand with a more traditional conservative view. And you mentioned this fascinating thesis of Richard Rex, the Cambridge historian, who says there's three reformations. Uh, The first was what is God, the second is what is church, and the one we're living through at the moment is what is man, uh, or I suppose what is woman uh, might be the the current question. Uh, How is that, how how does that apply to to what you're talking about in terms of Welby and, and Francis? I think I'd go back to what I was saying, that in 2013, very few people realised how big this crisis was. There was a sense of, well, we're Christians, we all believe that God is love, Uh, we all believe in helping the poor, we all want to be united, Um, maybe we can put on the side these uh, kind of arguments which aren't that essential about sexuality and gender and so on. but actually those arguments are about human nature and this is the richard rex analysis you mentioned that that the history of christianity has three big crises in it one about the nature of god when you have um you know mobs storming uh the churches of bishops trying to assassinate them because they've got the wrong view on how many persons there are in the trinity the reformation is obviously another big crisis over the nature of the church and we're now living through an upheaval which is as big as those and could go on for, for as long, which is about what is it to be a, a human being, basically. Mm-hmm. And we're a long way from resolving that question or resolving these, these debates. So I don't think we should expect any unity anytime soon. But Andrew, where there is possible unity, where there are possible unities, uh, is between uh, strands of liberalism that have for decades been viciously opposed to to Christian teaching and seeing Christianity as very backwards and regressive, and uh, let's say um, the, the, the Christian churches. I mean, there's uh, you, there's Mary Harrington, someone like that, is an interesting writer who writes about reactionary feminism, and that actually a lot of uh, liberals who are kind of being mugged by wokery, as it were, 
are now um, finding, uh, forming alliances with, with Christians and with Christian thinking on ideas of truth and so on? Well, yes, because we often forget that the, the Christian churches in our contemporary time have been liberalised rather successfully. I mean, long gone are the days where the, the Catholic Church taught that if you were you were gay, you should be burnt at the stake and you are essentially evil and demonic. You know, in the catechism, it talks about, yes, it's an intrinsic moral disorder, but it is not the case that someone who is uh, inherently attracted to members of their own sex is evil. That is accepted amongst Catholic teaching as being a, a, a state of nature, something that is a part of their being. It is the act. Uh, and of course, the, the Catholic Church has always taught that any sex act outside of wedlock is sinful anyway. So it isn't a, a kind of anti-gay thing. And the church has liberalised and attitudes have, have changed. But what you have now is a movement that, that sort of seizes the mantle of liberalism and claims to be progressive. And it's nothing of the kind. It's actually closer akin to the kind of uh, intolerant uh, elements of church teaching that the church has moved beyond and has left behind. Um, so that's where you're going to get this this conflict. Fundamentally, uh, modern day Christianity has at its heart the notion of forgiveness and repentance, ideas which are completely alien to the contemporary uh, religion of social justice. Those are things that they don't believe in. They believe in uh, cruelty and viciousness as a means to coerce people into going along, along with their worldview. I cannot see how that could possibly sit side by side with Christian teaching. Plus the fact, as you've mentioned, so many young people are coming up and are, are attracted to the traditionalism of the church. That was the whole appeal uh, of, of the, the, both the Church of England and the Catholic Church, is, is it's rooted in tradition. And, and that is something that is going to appeal more and more to young people who are going to react against. I mean, let's not forget that the religion of social justice is largely propagated by people of my age, uh, by um, millennials and, and, and Gen X. Uh, these people are old now. Millennials, you know, they're in their 40s, right? So younger people are going to react against it. And then you've also got the the, 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 the uh, insurpassable obstacle, I think, that some of the teachings of the religion of social justice are just fundamentally at odds with Christian teachings, particularly when it comes to gender. When, the, the, when you have this idea there is a gendered soul that we all have uh, that is at odds with our body, that cannot uh, possibly uh, sit with biblical teaching. It doesn't make any sense. It's incoherent. And so I come back to this point, I just think... Reconciliation is impossible. Uh, the conflict you mentioned is coming uh, and it can't come too soon. And Dan, I mean, I used to work at the Catholic Herald, which you edited. Um, uh, and we used to do quite a lot of stories on ecumenism, uh, the sort of coming together of, of Anglicanism with Catholicism, to bringing together the two churches. That's not really on anyone's priorities at the moment within Christianity, is it? Because both the Anglican Communion and the Catholic Church are so busily fighting each other. True to some extent, but I think all the things we're talking about mean, you know, people discovering new enemies, they also discover new friendships. So I do expect to see more conversations and perhaps more kind of unlikely alliances and interesting agreements between um, uh, Catholics and Anglicans who, you know, agree about the nature of marriage, even if they have um, very fundamental disagreements about um, you know, other questions, the, the Eucharist or the nature of authority in the church. Um, and I think those conversations are starting to happen. So this is yet another example of the upheaval uh, that we're living through and that's got a long way to run yet. Well, Dan and Andrew, I think we'll end it there, but a very happy Easter to both of you. Now, let's talk about art in prison. Uh, we have a fascinating piece, the arts lead in this week's magazine, 
on an exhibition, I think it's the only exhibition in the country, of prison art at Her Majesty's President Grendon. Um, the piece was written by Stuart Jeffries, who joins me now. He's an author and spectator contributor, and I'm also delighted to be joined uh, down the line by Lady Unchained, who is a poet and the creative director of Unchained Poetry, which works with prisoners um, and doing poetry. Uh, Stuart, I'll start with you um, and your excellent piece. Um, tell us a little bit about this exhibi- exhibition. Uh, you know, what, what were your impressions of it? Um, how's it come about and all that? Well, it's come about because um, Grendon is a really unusual prison. It's, it's a, a therapeutic prison. It's the only one in the country that, that was like that, that's been set up to do that, with the aim of rehabilitating quite serious offenders. Yes, so, so it's Category B, it's which category is still B. quite serious. Yeah. 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 So if you actually go to the site in Buckinghamshire, there's, there's a beautiful stately home, which is an open prison. And then next to it is Grendon, which is fenced off quite, quite harshly. All the people in there, 200 men thereabouts, uh, have applied to be at Grendon because it's to do with therapy and to do with their rehabilitation. They're all trying to get parole, trying to get out. They're all, a lot of them are coming to the end of quite serious sentences. Mm. So one of the guys I met was a murderer who had who, who, uh, been convicted when he was 15. Mm. Now, 18 years on, he's up for parole and he's one of the people who's taken part in this art project. Mm. And the art project is really strange. It's a, you know, singular in that... In, in prison, there's lots of drama therapy, there's lots of art therapy. This is slightly different in that they're being taught to produce contemporary art. They're being given skills in etching and photography and drawing and, and, and things like that by artists, professional artists who've come in, one of whom is, a, is a, an artist in residence who's been there for four years. Mm. Um, he isn't really in residence, actually, because he can't stay there overnight. But, you know, the, the, the whole thing is it's, it's a very, very unusual. And for them, it, it, it's, it's about trying to learn artistic skills and also getting really absorbed in art mm. in a way that they wouldn't have done in, 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 in any, other, any other prison, really. It's a really unusual yes. and, in a way, quite moving but also place, but also raises lots of interesting questions about you know, how serious are we about rehabilitating artists? How, how would I have felt if I'd found out that some of the art I'd seen on the walls at this gallery was, say, by, I don't know, Gary Glitter or by a you know, murderer. All the art I saw was, was you know, anonymous. Yes. I think your piece is very good on that, that you know, we're obsessed with cancelling people and so on now. Yeah. And when it comes to art, uh, you know, for centuries, people have been able to draw a distinction between the artist and the art. And actually, you know, quite often, very terrible people have done some of the greatest art uh, going yeah, uh, and and prison art sort of forces us to confront that. You know, yeah, it's, it's that's quite a very interesting subject. Yeah, I mean, imagine if Roman Polanski, you know, has never been convicted of rape, um, but a lot at the moment this, this, there is this cancel culture mood around his work. You know, one should not exhibit his films. It's great films, and they are really great. Yeah. If, however, you know, he might produce some art anonymously while in a prison like this. Would it have been okay, you know, to, to, would it, would it, you know, even if it were terrible, should it be exhibited? And there seems to be this kind of straight, really strange attitude towards prisoners and towards rehabilitation. You know? Yes. Should we allow it, you know? Yes. Do we believe in it in ourselves, you know? Yes. L- Lady Unchained, um, uh, tell us a little bit about Unchained Poetry. Um, and also I'd like to talk about, uh, you know, sort of funding for art therapy in prisons because... Uh, if we accept that it's an important part of rehabilitation, and I think most people do, um, is it 
significantly underfunded. I know that this this exhibition, Stuart, was was funded is funded charitably, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. tell us a little bit about that, please. Yeah, uh, so Unchained Poetry is an artistic platform that I created uh, for artists with lived experience of the criminal justice system. So that is artists that want to do poetry, spoken word, rap, song, you know, any form of like uh, performance element. I give them a platform and a stage to do so. Um, in regards to um, creative work and activities within prison, I'm 100% underfunded. I think a lot of organisations that work with our charities and they are basically, you know, jumping through hoops just to get this money in order to be able to deliver and facilitate workshops that we know is so beneficial for the people in prison. That, you know, when you're in those sessions, you see somebody that may have never ever express themselves in their whole childhood life up to adult life, all of a sudden you give them a few lines and you give them a pen and a paper and they start to express some things that they have never shared outside of their home, outside of their friendship circles. And I think with art, it gives people the power to understand their journey, not just their crime alone. What led up to that crime? How, you know, what was you thinking? What was you feeling? Who was you with before that time? And when you start to write, especially through poetry or spoken word, it gives people a moment. I don't tell people that we're going to do therapy because no one wants to, you know, no one gets excited for therapy. But once you're in the session, it is a therapeutic kind of experience. And a lot of the times I get young people say to me, oh, you think you're clever. You had us writing for like three hours. You know, and it's, they're not understanding that, you know, they are writing but because they're enjoying it and expressing themselves in a in a space that, to be honest, prison is a dark place. It's a lonely place. And in those two hours, you give somebody just a little view of what could possibly happen outside of that door. And for any viewers who are thinking this sounds a bit like sort of bleeding heart liberalism, there's a very good conservative argument for it, which is that you stop reoffending rates, uh, which are far more expensive for the government, or you reduce yeah. reoffending rates, which which is makes sense on a number of levels, doesn't it? Exactly. A lot of the time we know this for a fact that half half of the people released from prison within a year go back to offending or commit another crime outside of the crime they did. If we had, you know, these amazing creative spaces in prison, why can't we continue that on the outside so that they have somewhere to continue growing as an artist? And a lot of the times people in prison didn't even know. They didn't even know they were artists. Just like me, I never believed I was a poet. When I picked up a pen, it wasn't to become a spoken word artist. It was just a time for me to get over those emotions, get over the anger of being in prison, but also the darkness and pain that follows with that sentence. So for a lot of people, once they discover that, there's no outlet on the outside. So they tend to go back to old ways, you know, old outlets instead of kind of rechanneling that pen and that notebook. Well, is it that, I mean, a lot of people who are in prison uh, came from uh, dysfunctional families or, you know, did not get the education that uh, children need to have. And so prison sort of fills in uh, the gap where which schooling left out. I mean, I think what's what's sad about that is the fact that a lot of the young people, we've got young people coming straight from the care system, straight into secure units, from secure units into PRUs, from PRUs into young offending prisons. It's a journey. And a lot of the young people that I've met, once they were kicked out of school, and you know, it's sad for me to say this, but I have to say it. I had a group of eight to ten, eight to ten boys, and all of them said to me, if they had never been sent to a PRU, they would not know half of the gang members they know today. So clearly we are sending them somewhere that is only allowing them to have access to more people that are committing more crimes and bigger crimes. So my thing is education, especially through, through lockdown, we say that it's so important for people to have education, especially young people. But during lockdown, there was no education. That means 
all prisons, especially young offenders, were not getting education. For those two years, there was nothing happening. That means that we're locking them up and somehow hoping that by sitting behind the door, they're going to learn all the things that they need to learn in order for them to come out and be a normal civilian in the outside world, which unfortunately isn't happening. Yes, we had a fascinating piece in The Spectator recently by Charlie Taylor, who's Chief Inspector of uh, Prisons, about the devastating impact of lockdown in prisons um, and things like literacy. Uh, Stuart, you've probably come across this too. Literacy uh, rates among prisons are very low. Prison is often a very good chance to improve that. Mm. Um, That hasn't been happening generally enough anyway. Uh, And it certainly didn't happen during lockdown when prisoners were effectively... And feel free to come on, come in on this lady unchained. Um, prisoners were effectively just just shut in in solitary confinement for large. A lot of the prisoners I talked to said during lockdown they they were you know they were out for an hour maybe and yeah. their, and their classes were cancelled and they were really miserable because it it, it, gave, it gave, gives them not just creativity but it gives them a sense of absorption in that almost like D H Lawrence sense of when you're absorbed in something that's really inspiring to you, it's liberating and freeing, freeing as well as equipping you with kind of skills that might be useful to you on the outside world, you know. Um, so yeah, lockdown's really hard um, for a lot of these guys. A lot of these, I, I don't know, you know, for, I'm, 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 you know I'm, I'm outside the criminal world, clearly, but I try, trying to understand what, what it's like to, to have got into the criminal system and what it must do to you is, is quite a worthwhile journey to, to do. And it's, it, a lot of the guys in there were very well qualified. You know, some of them had done degrees in criminology and had come from very, very humble backgrounds, very vulnerable backgrounds, you know, sort of parents who are heroin addicted and all kinds of terrible, you know, uh, things in their upbringing and were very, had been, you know, very inarticulate, pre, pre-literate and had, and had done a, a job on themselves and made themselves over. So in a way, prison's a terrible place to be, particularly because of what Lady Unchained was saying. But it's also a place where you can have an existential breakthrough and change yourself. Yeah. And that's something I would have thought you know, that is worth encouraging. Otherwise, what are we doing? We're just holding people in, in, in a prison where they're likely to reoffend, and um, you know, that's not good for anybody. Lady Unchained, you mentioned that uh, prison is a very weird place. Um, you're an ex-convict yourself. Uh, could you give us a sense of just how weird it is? You know, prison is a very weird, dark, lonely place, and people would think, but there's thousands of people in prisons. It doesn't make it doesn't mean that it's a comfortable place. And you know, there's a lot of the time people say, "Oh, you hear that people are playing games, or you know, they're doing artistic stuff, and they should be punished." Well, actually. Don't we want the people that are in prison to actually better themselves while they're in there? Isn't that the pay, the pro- whole process of prisons in order to make somebody, you know, channel their, their feelings and understand why they committed crimes? In prison, unfortunately, this rehabilitation word for somebody that has been behind the door, I learned rehabilitation through picking up a pen. I learned rehabilitation through the other women I met in prison. There was no guideline of how to do that. So for me, prison is a weird place because I felt like I was sent there to learn something but I wasn't taught that. I taught that through myself, through my writing and through other women that, thank God, saw something in me and decided that they will kind of teach me or show me how to do things or make sure that I know how to, you know, get an app in. Prison is a weird place because this word rehabilitation doesn't exist in prison. It only happens through creative arts, through charities that go in there, through the amazing power of National Prison Radio to be able to host shows into prisons every single day so that people actually have an outlet or understand that there is people outside that are still listening, still fighting and still willing to help them share their story and actually help their voices be heard. 
Well, that is very interesting indeed. Thank you very much, Lady Unchained, and thank you, Stuart, for joining us both on Spectator TV. That is it for the week in 60 Minutes. You are now free to go from your incarceration for 60 Minutes. We hope that you have enjoyed what we've put on the show this week. I would like to remind you before you go once more that you should subscribe to our YouTube channel. And to do that, you click the button at the bottom of the screen and also the bell to get a reminder whenever there's a new episode. And finally, once again, do subscribe to The Spectator magazine and take advantage of our brilliant offer, which is 12 editions of The Spectator and full digital access for just £12. You can take up that offer by going to spectator.co.uk forward slash TV offer. I really think you should. And as if that wasn't enough, we will throw in a £20 Amazon voucher for everyone taking that offer up. Thanks again for watching. I wish you all a very happy Easter. And don't forget to tune in again next week. Thank you.